Thanks to you at home for joining us this hour. I'm Ali Velshi in for Alex tonight. Today, the Nashville Metropolitan Police Department released body camera and security footage from yesterday's shooting that left three children, three adults and the shooter themselves dead at an elementary school in the Nashville suburbs. Now, there is a lot that's notable about the footage. First off, 14 minutes went by between when police were first alerted that a shooter had entered the building and when the police ultimately shot the shooter. It's pretty fast. We can now see that for a good chunk of that time, the shooter, who you see on the screen, appears to have been unable to find anyone to shoot. From the body camera footage, we can also see how quick and brave the response from both staff members and the first responders was. This woman was outside the school, out in the open, when the police arrived. Not only was she putting herself in danger by not getting to a more secure location, but listen to how she communicated to the police when they arrived. Okay. Okay. Yes, ma'am. They're upstairs. Hey. That woman quickly and concisely told the police everything they needed to know. Be careful. Two kids might still be in the hallways. People inside are telling her that the shooter is upstairs. Seconds after that, the police enter the building. Fellowship Hall, end of this hall is Fellowship Hall. They're, they just said they heard gunshots down there, and then upstairs are a bunch of kids. Let's go. I need three. One more. One more. Let's go. Metro Police. The police then cleared the room after they cleared room after room uh, methodically and with breathtaking speed. It's clear they have trained for this moment. And when they ultimately heard gunshots, they sprinted toward them. They neutralized the shooter. It's a testament to the teachers in a building for locking down so effectively that it took so long for the shooter to find anyone to shoot. It's a testament to the first responders that they got to the scene and through the building that quickly, given the fact that the shooter had two semi-automatic weapons and a handgun, three guns. Every second in a situation like this matters because these weapons can do an ungodly amount of destruction in no time at all. There's one other piece of video that the Nashville police released today that I think is worth you seeing. It's particularly worth seeing in the context of how elected Republican officials respond every time we as a country go through a mass shooting like this. You might remember that last year after a shooter killed 19 students and two teachers at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, Republicans became obsessed with blaming one thing. Doors. Unlocked doors. Doors that weren't, quote, hard enough. Republicans made a huge huff about how the real policy solution after Uvalde was hardened, locked doors. We talked about what we need to do to harden schools, including not having unlocked back doors. If the school was on lockdown, could have the doors have been locked where he couldn't have gotten in? Classroom doors should be hardened to make them lockable from the inside and closed to intruders from the outside. Put a pin in that for a second. Take a look at this. This is how the shooter entered the school yesterday. They used a semi-automatic weapon to shoot their way through the doors. I have no clue if that door was locked or not. Clearly, it did not matter. Now, I'm sure some people, like Republican Texas Senator Ted Cruz, would argue that if only the doors had been bulletproof, if only we had banned windows. Minutes before the shooting yesterday, the shooter drove past the kids 
playing outside on the playground. Will Republicans start advocating against children playing outside as well? This is all nonsense and a distraction. There's always something other than guns to blame. They're fine with going to you know, do a run on the guns. And I guess you can argue that if that's what you want to do, try to you know, get rid of the Second Amendment. But yet completely oblivious to what legalization of marijuana has, has done and is doing to an entire generation of Americans with violent consequences. Not sure how we got onto marijuana in this discussion, but it's always something. It's never actually the guns. Sometimes the distraction is something with a shred of truth to it, like how we in this country do not do nearly enough to help people undergoing mental health crises. Today, we learned that yesterday's shooter was under a doctor's care for an emotional disorder. Except plenty of people in plenty of countries have mental health issues. And we are the only country where shootings like this happen over and over again. So do not get too distracted by the mental health issue or that violent video games are the cause. Sometimes the Republican line is that by even talking about guns when discussing mass shootings, it's Democrats that are politicizing the issue. I really get angry when I see people trying to politicize it for their own personal agenda. It just seems like on the other side, all they want to do is take guns away from law-abiding citizens before they even know the facts. The first thing they talk about is taking guns away from law-abiding citizens. Uh, And that's not the answer, by the way. That is also a distraction. Everything is political. Sometimes the Republican distraction is so awful, you actually do have to comment on it. And unfortunately, that's the case today. All the conversation on television has been about the guns that were used, and there may be a reason for that. They don't want to talk about who did it and why. Law enforcement has confirmed at this hour that the shooter was a trans person. That was the very top of Tucker Carlson's show last night, trying to make the issue not guns, but the shooter's gender identity. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene took this a step further this afternoon by trying to blame hormone therapy. We have no idea if the shooter was undergoing hormone therapy, but in the words of Congressman Greene, quote, everyone can stop blaming guns now, which is really code for focusing on the shooter's identity, something conservatives don't seem overly concerned about when the shooter is a white man, which is often. Trans people are already more likely to experience violence simply because they are trans people, so the right focusing on that is uniquely dangerous. And we have to respond to that. But it is also a distraction because there are plenty of trans people in plenty of countries all over the world. But once again, America is the only nation where shootings like this happen over and over again. So maybe it's not mental health or video games or hormones. Maybe it's the guns. Today, we learned that the shooter in Nashville legally purchased seven weapons in the past few years, three of which were used in yesterday's attack. Maybe that's where the focus should be. How easy it is in this country to legally obtain incredibly powerful weapons capable of horrific destruction. Maybe that's where we have to focus and that everything else is a distraction. Joining us now is the Tennessee State Senator Heidi Campbell. She met with the families of the students of Covenant School yesterday. Senator Campbell, thanks for making the time to be with us. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on in your community right now? You ended up going to the the, the church where the kids were the, the kids who were not shot were relocated so they could be reunited with their families. Uh, that's that's a a horrible experience, even when you are actually going to collect your kids who haven't been shot. Yeah, it was the worst waiting room I've ever been in. I, uh, you know, minutes went on like hours while these families 
waited to find out um, what the status was with their children. It was just horrific. Um, I was so proud of my community and the way that they supported one another. The police did a beautiful job, but um, but no parent should ever have to go through a day like that. And, um, you know, here we are in the aftermath of this. And I can just tell because I'm a senator in this state and I'm very familiar with how things work here that we're about to make this about the fact that the shooter was trans. Uh, it is it's unsurprising that that's what we're about to make it about. Um, but it's 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 putting aside the fact that it's discriminatory and that we really don't need to be making life harder for trans people. It's just also not the case. It's not the issue at hand. We don't know enough about uh, the shooter to know what Marjorie Taylor Greene is talking about and hormone therapy and all of these things. We do know that there are a lot of guns and a lot of shootings and a lot more in this country. We also know that you you ran against uh, uh, Andy Ogles for a House seat in 2022. Uh, this is a guy who sent out a Christmas card. Everybody, nobody necessarily may know who Andy Ogles is, but everybody saw this picture. This is his family Christmas card. The guns thing where you are is big. You're actually, you've got a law working through the legislature in Tennessee that would loosen gun laws. Yeah, we have gun companies moving here because um, we are such a gun-friendly state. I would argue we're probably the most gun-friendly state in the country right now. Um, and we, ha- we have bills moving through the legislature to make guns even more accessible, even though we passed what they call constitutional carry. I call it permitless um, carry. But in any case, um, we are a state that is obsessed with guns. And the problem with that is that the polling shows us very clearly that most Tennesseans want common sense gun reform. Um, but we have legislators who do not honor um, honor their constituents views on that. Well, most most Americans want common sense gun reform. But it, the, the, the line that we heard from Steve Scalise and a lot of people is that when you talk about common sense gun reform, you are looking to take away guns from law abiding people and, and in violation of the Second Amendment. That is not actually typically what most people who want gun reform are trying to do. Of course not. You know, we um, put all these checks and balances in place for our kids when they ride in automobiles. I mean, good Lord, we spent the past two years uh, banning books and we just banned drag shows because we want to make kids safer, supposedly. And, um, <laughs> you know, and yet, you know, nine year old children get shot down and we don't seem to think that we need to do anything about guns. The common denominator in all these situations is that there's somebody who has a gun. Um, 367 shootings, um, school shootings since Columbine. Since Columbine, since we said never again, yeah. there have been 367 shootings. And, um, and, and you know, yet we, we won't do anything about it. It's just um, indefensible. And in Sandy Hook, after that, we said never again. And in Parkland, we said never again. Uh, look, there is some progress, but there is a, a, a representative from your state, Tim Burchett, uh, who said something interesting that I think we also have to address on nights like this. Let's just listen to this, and I want to get your comment on the other side. You want to legislate evil, it's just not going to happen. We've got evil in this country, and everybody just needs to tone down the rhetoric a little bit, because all that does is gin it up in both sides and then they point the finger and nothing happens because not if you think washington's going to fix this problem you're wrong they're not going to fix this problem they are the problem 
There's a lot in there, but I think that that first point is what I want to ask you how you react to that, because there are people who say that you can't legislate evil. These are bad people. It's not guns. It's bad people who use guns. What, what, what do you say in response to people who say you can't legislate evil? Uh, well, first of all, I don't know what he's talking about when he talks about evil. I mean, there are, are, are so many different motives that people have had for these shootings, and some of them have been anti-Semitic, and some of them have been um, Nazi-oriented. But um, for him to, you know, try and tell us that you can't legislate evil when we know that these are issues that people are dealing with in every every country on this planet, yep. and yet our country is the one that the only one that has uh, such horrific outcomes when it comes to gun violence. Yeah, the correlation is the number of guns we have in this country to the amount of gun violence we have, not video games, not transgender people, not evil, not marijuana, whatever anybody wants to say. Senator, our thoughts are with you. I'm sorry um, that we have to have this conversation. State Senator Heidi Campbell of Tennessee, thanks for being with us. Thank you. I want to turn to Manuel Oliver. His son, Joaquin, was killed five years ago at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas School shooting in Parkland, Florida. Uh, he's a gun safety advocate. He's a co-founder of Change the Ref. Uh, and Manuel, another story of you and me talking again after, uh, after a school shooting. Uh, I was there at Parkland. I was there at Sandy Hook. And I always thought it was true that we're going to, this is going to stop, that, that the country is inflamed about it. And, and frankly, after Parkland and March for Our Lives, things really did change. Things, they moved the needle. Your son's death moved the needle. But the needle hasn't moved far enough. Uh, absolutely. I agree 100% with the introduction that you've just made. And uh, the needle has moved very little. Um, actually, I have the feeling that... Um, it, it, it went a little backwards during the last uh, month or probably a couple of years. So um, that means that we need to do more. I, I don't want to um, send in this interview that I'm, that I'm going to quit uh, uh, what we do or, or we're just frustrated and, and there's nothing else we can do. This is a reason to do more and different things. So um, I invite everyone to be really offended this time. We had enough and, and you just heard it from our politicians. Washington is not going to fix it. And so then who's going to fix it? We have to fix it. What does that look like to you? Because after Parkland, uh, the young people, the survivors of that uh, man and, and, and their parents, people like you, you, you manifested that energy and you showed that there was that energy and you looked for candidates who would uh, run for office and do the right thing. And you supported them and many of them got elected. And for the first time, it looked like the, the, the sensible gun reform movement was able to raise money and have political influence that, generally speaking, only the gun industry has had until now. So we've got something happening on the side of, of, of sensible gun reform. What does doing more mean right now? If our viewer is offended tonight, which is the right word. You should be offended when another child dies at a school. What does doing the right thing look like? Doing the right thing is doing that every day until it stops. Doing the right thing is what we do. All the groups that are fighting against gun violence, we don't wait for a shooting to tell you what we think and what we must do, and we should ban assault weapons. No, this is a daily job. There were more, almost a million people on that march five years ago. Yep. Where are they now? Where are these celebrities today to prevent the shooting of tomorrow? It was five years ago this weekend, in fact. That's that's the amazing part about it. I, I have to ask you, Manuel, you and I have talked a lot, but 
how does this how is this different for you when you hear the news when I when I see it in, on my phone that there's been a school shooting? What, what's different for you when you hear about these things? Well, I know I know what the pain is. Uh, you're 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 one of the lucky ones still still. Uh, I know exactly what those parents are feeling today. I went through that. And that's why so um, I'm desperate to let you understand that you need to get on board. We need to call for a national action here. I'm calling for an educational strike. I mean, we need the teachers to stand with us and save their places of work and their kids and their students. This is an urgent call, what I'm doing now, not a regular interview so you can know how I feel. You don't want to feel how I feel. No. No, I can't imagine what that would feel like. But what strikes, generally speaking, someone strikes because they feel that someone else in their industry is doing something and that if they don't stand by them, the th- same thing can happen to us. Clearly, not enough Americans think that. Clearly, we, we, we look at these school shootings and we think it's horrible. We know that our kids go through active shooter drills, but we somehow don't think it's going to be us. Every time I go to a little town where there's a school shooting, Manuel, it's another little town that didn't want to be famous for being uh, shut up to have their, having their schools shut up and then their names go down in history like Parkland, like Sandy Hook, like Columbine, one after another after another. But people don't think it's their problem yet. And and not to mention that those kids were traumatized every single day. You know what happened yesterday? They probably thought it was a drill. They probably thought they were training just in case something happened. And it was the real deal. Tomorrow, there's going to be more drills. You will see some politicians suggesting that the kids need to practice more how to survive this. And they will almost, almost blame it on the kids because they die by just not being trained well enough to survive this situation. Yeah. Shame on those policies. It's no kid's job to know how to save themselves from being shot. Manuel, you tweeted, uh, not fighting back for the next victim of gun violence makes us part of the problem. It's an important point. I'm sorry you and I continue to have conversations like this. Maybe one day you and I will never have to talk again. Manuel Oliver, thanks again for making time for talking to us tonight. Thank you. Have a great night. All right, we got a lot more for you tonight. In Nebraska, Democrats in the state's legislature gave Republicans a chance to do the right thing and vote down a bill banning transgender health care. So what happens when Republicans predictably did the wrong thing? I'll tell you about it on the other side. Plus, massive protests appear to have convinced Israel's prime minister to press pause on a major power grab. But what happens now? A former Israeli prime minister joins us next. I'm very concerned, and I'm concerned that they get this straight. They cannot continue on this road, and uh, I've sort of made that clear. President Biden today weighing in on some impending existential changes to Israel's democracy. Now, before we dive into that, let's go back a few years to November 2019, when Israel's longest serving prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, was indicted by Israel's attorney general on charges of fraud, bribery, and breach of trust. A years-long investigation resulted in the country's first prosecution of a sitting prime minister for, among other accusations, engaging in a quid pro quo with a media outlet for favorable coverage. As the country's top prosecutor assured the nation that no one is above the law, the prime minister insisted that the case against him was nothing more than political animus, lies, an attempted coup, and that his supporters should, quote, 
investigate the investigators. As the case against Netanyahu advanced, he remained in office until the summer of 2021, when a shaky coalition of rivals who had virtually nothing in common except for their disdain for Netanyahu's government unseated him. If anything about that story seems like it kind of rhymes with American politics, you're not alone. And what happened next in Israel might be of particular interest to you. Late last year, Netanyahu made a wild political comeback, taking back the reins as prime minister, even as his corruption trial continues to drag on to this day. One of his first orders of business was to, quote unquote, reform the judiciary. His proposed changes would allow Israel's parliament to override the Supreme Court's decisions and would give lawmakers more control over appointments to the high court. Now, many see Netanyahu's plans for the judiciary as a means of consolidating power and potentially wiggling out of his own legal problems. This week, one of Netanyahu's defense attorneys threatened to step down from the job to stop representing the country's leader on corruption charges if the prime minister followed through on his plans to overhaul Israel's judicial system. That threat was one in a series of protests that escalated across the country. Look at these pictures. Look at these images of the people on the streets. Hundreds of lawyers demonstrated in front of Tel Aviv courts on Sunday, joining the Bar Association's protest of Netanyahu's planned reforms. On Thursday, Netanyahu doubled down on his plans in a fiery address that was given hours after his government passed a law, making it more difficult to declare a prime minister unfit for office. Opposition, opposition leaders described it as a way to protect a legally embattled Netanyahu. But Sunday was the real spark that caused the months-long protests over judiciary changes to boil over, when Netanyahu abruptly fired his defense minister, who had just called for a pause to this judicial overhaul. So for that reason, tens of thousands of people poured into the streets in major cities across the country to tell their leader, no, you cannot corrupt the courts for your advantage. No, you cannot fire officials who speak against your plans. No. Protesters in Tel Aviv chanted, the country is on fire as they lit bonfires on the main highway. Police opened water cannons on protesters to clean, uh, clear them out. They gathered in front of Parliament and the Supreme Court. They demonstrated in front of Netanyahu's house. Yesterday, workers in so many industries went on strike that the country was essentially paralyzed. Departing flights from Ben-Gurion Airport were canceled. Pilots walked off the job. Diplomats walked off the job. Preschools and universities were shuttered. Health, transit, banking workers went on strike in solidarity with the country's largest trade union. Finally, Netanyahu agreed to pause his judicial overhaul for at least a few weeks until the next parliamentary session begins. He acknowledged that the country was at a breaking point and he promised to, quote, find a solution. But even after that, some protesters continued their demonstrations in much smaller numbers. Some said they do not believe Netanyahu. They see this pause as a temporary solution to a bigger democratic problem. I don't trust Netanyahu. He's lied so many times. He has absolutely no credit whatsoever. Nothing's really changed. It's still ongoing. It just it just got pushed. But the fact that he really was was we were able to do something with these protests, with these pressures, with these strikes. It really um, it's really going to make a difference if we just keep going, keep up the pressure. It's the only thing that we can do. Joining us now is Ehud Barak. He is the former Israeli general. He was the prime minister of Israel from 1999 to 2001. Mr. Barak, thank you for being with us tonight. Thank you for having me. 
I have spoken to a number of Israelis and a number of American uh, avid uh, uh, supporters of Israel over the last few days, and I have never heard them uh, as worried about the future uh, of Israel. Where are you right now in terms of uh, the, the democratic health of your country, and have you pulled back from the brink? Uh, I think there, there was a major uh, victory for the protest movement against Netanyahu, basically uh, coercing into capitulating and stopping at the last moment uh, what was defined by our Chief Justice uh, Esther Hayut as a, not a judicial reform, but an explicit uh, effort or attempt to uh, crush the judicial system and the independence of the Supreme Court and uh, push uh, Israel outside of the family of democratic nations. So the whole public stood up, all uh, leading group in all ways of life, and said uh, up to here, and you described it very well, but the, the overall uh, battle is not over. It's one time a uh, major victory, and uh, now some of the protesters might uh, give him a pause. Others, as you have described, won't give him a pause. And uh, there are some negotiations opened in the office of the uh, president of the of the state, uh, Mr. Herzog, uh, between uh, different factions. The, the opposition was there today. Probably the coalition will be tomorrow. And we will see. I'm confident we will win. Uh, Netanyahu won't be able to push Israel into a kind of uh, status like uh, Hungary under Orban or, or Poland under Kaczynski. We are too strong and too, too kind of aggressive. Well, I, 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 I mean, it's interesting that you democracy. say that. Uh, you, it's interesting you say that, uh, Prime Minister uh, uh, Barack, because that's what everybody thinks, right? That's America also thinks we're too strong to be pushed into this kind of nonsense. And underlying what, what Netanyahu is doing, this is a guy you know, you've run against him, um, you, 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 you've won against him. He. This is not the only problem. The judicial reform is not the only problem. He is the prime minister again because he has formed a coalition that is, and every time he gets elected, we say this, it's the most right-wing coalition in Israel's history. He, this is not where it begins or ends. No, it's, it didn't end yet, but uh, it will end, I believe. You know, it's uh, we have an empirical uh, evidence uh, that uh, whenever a major protest force uh, count more than 3.5 percent of the of the population. It's about seven or eight percent of the adult population. Uh, and the internationally and, and uh, kind of uh, determinedly keep uh, uh, protesting. At the end of it, the government either capitulate or falls down. And that's what will happen in Israel as well. The government won't be able to to uh, continue this way. And Netanyahu lost a lot of his. Uh, prestige. Uh, there is a free fall of his favorability among the people, and the majority of his own voters are against of what he's doing. And many people lost their trust that Netanyahu is still got the proper or the, the um, uh, judgment and, and calibrated kind of attitude to the problem that the prime minister in Israel needs.
There's another issue going on, and that there's increased tensions with the Palestinians. Um, there are provocations uh, on, on both sides of this issue, but this Netanyahu government has not helped the situation in the way that it's been reacting. And there are a lot of Palestinians, because we've talked to a lot of them on, on this network, who say, this is fantastic that all these Israelis came out and protested against uh, judicial reforms, but there's still the problem of the Palestinians. And you don't see 500,000 Israelis coming, taking to the streets to say, let's solve that problem. You tried. You tried when you were prime minister. This prime minister is not trying. Uh, I, I think we have to put on the shelf for the time being the big elephants in the room. There is the one regard to the Palestinians. There is another one about the uh, relationship between uh, religion and, and the state. There are gaps in the society. There are many main issues, but they have all been put on the shelf by now in order to make sure, first of all, that Israel will remain a democracy. So we join hands from all parts of the uh, situation. You mentioned earlier the firing of the uh, defense minister. The minister of defense, which is Israel, is the direct responsible to the armed forces. He demanded gathering of the cabinet in order to uh, uh, present to the cabinet what he sees as an immediate and apparent risk to the security of the nation. And that's something unheard of, that the uh, prime minister did not respond it on the spot. And Netanyahu didn't let him to gather the cabinet, his cabinet, the prime minister's cabinet. And the reason was that the next morning there should be some uh, vote in the Knesset where, uh, where uh, one of these uh, crazy laws that he tries to pack in order to push Israel out of the democratic nation's family uh, has to be decided. So basically, Netanyahu was afraid that if the ministers in the cabinet, which are members of the Knesset, will hear first first year, will hear the what what the commander of the armed forces, what the head of our intelligence, what the leaders of the defense establishment think about it, uh, they might not join him in voting uh, for his loan. So he, he closed it, and when the minister demanded. Uh, and, and went out and told the public the truth, he fired him. That's something unheard of and led many people, including the Netanyahu supporters, to put a question mark about his judgment. We don't have constitution. We yes. don't have the 25th Amendment. But these half million people in the street, which is about uh, more than 10% of, of adult population Israel, equivalent of Americans, probably 170 million. When these half a million are in the streets, it's because we don't have constitution, we don't have yeah. 25th Amendment, and people feel that that's what the fifth step to take. And you see in the picture, we will win. The protest will ultimately win. It might take time. All right. I have ups and downs, but we won't lose the Well, game. we'll continue this conversation because we can't put the other the matter of the Palestinians on the shelf uh, forever. So uh, I'll invite you back and we'll continue no, that conversation. Forever. Not no, forever, but for the time being. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll have to discuss that because there are a whole lot of Palestinians who say this is the moment to talk about it. But thank you. I know you're up in the middle of the night for us, and I always appreciate your time. Ehud Barak is the former prime minister of Israel. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, another major loss for Team Trump as a federal judge orders former Vice President Mike Pence to testify to the grand jury investigating January 6th. Plus, Nebraska Democrats take the gloves off over legislation that bans gender-affirming care for young people. That's next.
No one in the world holds a grudge like me. And no one in the world cares less about being petty than me. I don't care. Fighting words from Nebraska State Senator Megan Hunt before a vote on a bill last week that would ban medical care for trans kids. Kids like Senator Hunt's own son. Democrats in Nebraska in the legislature are waiting a remarkable, waging a remarkable fight against this bill. It started with Senator Michaela Kavanaugh vowing to bring Nebraska's legislative session to a standstill. She and Democratic allies are now filibustering every single bill this session unless the Republican-led body decides to drop this anti-trans bill. Last week, the Democrats agreed to one single vote to give Republicans a chance to take a stand against the anti-trans bill, but they voted to advance it instead. So Nebraska Democrats vowed to take up their filibuster again today, and Republicans tried to get around them by changing the rules to make it harder to filibuster, but the Democrats were undeterred. We are blowing up this session. The session's over. The session's over and it's on your terms because the terms were made clear to you for the last four to six weeks. And you ignored that. You didn't care. Hating trans kids in Nebraska is more important to you than the rest of this entire session. And that message is received loud and clear. Now, this anti-trans bill would have to pass two more times before it could move to the desk of Nebraska's Republican governor. But with only 39 days left in the session, the speaker of the Nebraska legislature has conceded that time is running out for bills that don't involve taxes, education funding or the state budget. And Democrats are saying no votes on anything. So that anti-trans bill is likely out of play for now. When we come back, former Vice President Mike Pence has a lot to say about the pressure that he was under on January 6th to do his boss's bidding. Now he's going to have to tell what he knows to a grand jury. Stay with us. Special Counsel Jack Smith has been scoring win after win in his sprawling January 6th criminal investigation. Donald Trump suffered a major loss today in his fight to stop the vice president, his, his former vice president, from testifying into the special counsel's probe. In a sealed ruling, the new D.C. chief judge overseeing the January 6th grand jury ordered Pence to testify as part of the criminal probe and to comply with Jack Smith's subpoena. The judge totally rejected the ex-president's executive privilege claim. Uh, in his attempt to stop Pence, but Trump wasn't alone in fighting the subpoena, and it's notable that Pence decided to fight the subpoena in the first place. He's called the special counsel's subpoena unprecedented and unconstitutional. But when it came to promoting his book last fall, the former vice president had no problem spilling the details of private conversations with Trump. In fighting the subpoena, Pence made a different argument than Trump. He's relied on the Constitution's speech and debate clause to assert that as president of the Senate, he does not have to testify about anything related to his official duties counting the votes on January 6th. Now, the D.C. federal judge agreed in part with that assertion, but ruled that Pence must testify to any conversations that may relate to potential illegality on Trump's part. Here's what Pence had to say tonight in response to the judge's ruling. I'm pleased uh, that the court uh, accepted our argument and recognized that the Constitution's provision about speech and debate does apply to the vice president. 
but the way they sorted that out and, uh, and, and uh, the requirements of my testimony going forward are a subject of our review right now. Now, pressed about whether he planned to appeal this ruling, Pence said he would make a decision in the coming days. This comes after a string of wins for the special counsel in the January 6th probe. Last week, some of the ex-president's inner circle were ordered to testify, including his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. The rulings today ordered Pence to testify and wholly rejecting Trump's attempts to stop it. Well, it feels like a pivotal turning point in the special counsel's investigation. Joining us now is Laura Jarrett, senior legal correspondent for NBC News. Laura, great to see you. Thank you for being with us. Of course. What do you make of this? Uh, Mike Pence has been an interesting character. Yeah. He did talk about it in his book. He does make speeches about how history is going to judge Donald Trump. Feels like a guy who wants to say something. And yet he's a guy who's been fighting the subpoena. Obviously, politically, it's tricky for him to be seen as complying with the subpoena. Um, by all accounts, he believes that he has a constitutional right uh, to some immunity as it relates to his role on January 6th. That had been sort of a novel legal claim, an untested one. Uh, there was a lot of debate among lawyers about whether or not it would work. The judge seems to agree with it in principle, but the victory is almost ephemeral for him because the real heart of what the special counsel wants is probing at Trump's intent. Yes. Uh, and all of his efforts to try to obstruct and overturn the 2020 election. So to the extent that he can now probe at their conversations leading up to right. January 6th, all that is fair Because Mike Pence says, I, I, I'm not compelled to testify about things I was doing as the president of Senate. Yeah. But it doesn't seem like that's what Jack Smith wants to know about. He wants to know about the conversations on January 5th and before that that happened. And Mike Pence writes about and talks about. In fact, I think we've got it. Uh, maybe we don't. Maybe I was just reading about it. But he, he talks about the fact that he had a tense conversation yeah. with Donald Trump on January 5th, and he said he does not believe it's within his power to do what Trump wanted him to do. Yeah, and specifically the meeting that happens on January 4th in the Oval Office with Trump and John Eastman, this lawyer who sort of cooks up the blueprint, if yep. you will, about how to actually overturn uh, the election and overturn the people's will. And Pence's role in that is critical because they're trying to convince Pence, you have the power to actually not certify the votes. Pence is saying, I don't have that power. Right. Everyone's looked into it and I don't have that. Now the special counsel gets to ask on the stand, or is probably prosecutors do exactly what did the former president say in response right. and all of the machinations behind that now gets to come out again critical sort of to the key inquiry of what were trump's intentions in uh, starting to stop the election and again there's a lot of public evidence about this judge michael ludick has been very frank nah. about the fact that pence's lawyer called him several times and said he needs cover. He doesn't want to do this. He doesn't believe he can do it. But he needs an authority like you to go out there and say this is not right. And Michael Ludick put out some tweets and, and history was made on that. So I don't I wonder, is this just because Jack Smith's got a probe and has to get things on the record under oath? Because Jack Smith and everybody else kind of knows what Mike Pence was thinking about what Donald Trump wanted. To I get think done. it's very different to put someone in front of a grand jury under oath and be able to go a little bit deeper. I mean, it, Pence has offered a fair amount in terms of his reflections, right. but he hasn't offered as much about what did Trump say I in see. response and sort of what did all the other aides say? What were all the other pressure campaigns right. and, and points of pressure on you other than, you know, just your Got own it. reflections? We know about Pence's it. side of yeah. it. Uh, let's talk about the New York grand jury. Uh, yeah. we, we do not believe that they are going to vote, or at least we don't know, but with as it stands, we don't think there's we don't believe in. they're meeting tomorrow, which is interesting. Right. So what do you think is happening? We know that David Pecker, uh, who was the guy in charge of uh, of the National Enquirer, we know what he said about this in the past. He's now been he was called back. He testified again. 
Any idea what's going on here? I'm curious why he would be called back so late in the game. I think some have speculated about whether he almost served as a rebuttal witness to Robert Costello, who we saw go in last week, who was put forth as Trump's essentially in his stead, in his shoes as a defense witness, trying to discredit Michael Cohen's credibility. Obviously, Cohen and Pecker have a number of important conversations specifically about this hush money scheme yep. and all the payments. Um, uh, unclear, obviously, what Pecker said. We don't have that reporting. But the time is interesting. Um, and it's unclear whether this is actually a delay that we're seeing right now, or maybe yeah. this was always part of the process. The only reason we thought that this was sort of so the Donald end Trump game, tweeted it. Well, not just that, well, he, that but, but really it was the fact that his lawyers were offered the opportunity to come in, right. have your client testify. That's not something you see until the very end. Tell so close. that was really the tell. Right. The tweet and the, all, post, yeah. the post was sort of him sort of putting his own sort of spin on the timetable. Right. But that, that was that was never sort of a realistic thing because so, we had no reporting. So we could be on the timeline that was Exactly. We, we just don't yet know, yeah. I think, enough about what exactly is going on in that grand jury room. Well, we're a little smarter for having you tell us about it. Thank you, Laura. Good to <laughs> see course, you. Laura Jarrett is NBC News senior legal correspondent. All right, we're going to be right back. Two months ago, school district officials in Pinellas County, Florida, announced that The Bluest Eye, a novel by the Nobel and Pulitzer Prize winner Toni Morrison, had been removed from classrooms and libraries after a single parent complained about a rape scene included in the book. Last week, a principal in Tallahassee, Florida, was forced to resign after a single parent claimed that students had been exposed to pornography because they were shown a picture of Michelangelo's statue of David. If that's true, then you're all looking at pornography right now. And today, we are learning that an elementary school in St. Petersburg, Florida, is barring students from watching a film about civil rights icon Ruby Bridges, a six-year-old black girl who integrated New Orleans schools in the 1960s. That too, is after a single parent filed a complaint saying that the movie isn't appropriate for second graders because it might teach them that, quote, white people hate black people, end quote. The school had sent permission, uh, parents a permission slip asking whether their children could watch the Ruby Bridges movie, which is a Disney movie, by the way. About 60 kids watched the film, but two families would not give their children permission to watch. One of those children's parents then filed a formal objection to the movie. Her claim was enough for the school to say they're banning the movie until further notice while they review the complaint. One single parent who, by the way, admitted in the complaint she only watched the first 50 minutes of the film. The common thread in all of these stories is that in Ron, Governor Ron DeSantis' Florida, it just takes a single parent to complain for schools to effectively ban books and other teaching materials. So far, this has been happening in a sort of an informal way, but just two weeks ago, a Florida House panel approved a bill that could officially prompt the statewide removal of books or other instruction materials if just one parent objects to them. One. Now, if this sounds outlandish, if you think that there's no way that something that extreme could actually pass, I've got three words for you. Welcome to Florida. That does it for us tonight. I'll see you again here tomorrow.